0: Okay, live from Denver. It's time for some critical Q and A. We're doing a live stream. Um, really, by popular demand, it's your, it's your guys's fault uh, that, that that this is happening. I'm I'm gonna totally shift blame to all of you uh, for uh, all of my decisions. Let's <laughs> let's go to the uh, chat screen so you can see comments as they're coming up here, and then let's go ahead and set up our um, chat for the question comment thing here please put your question for me under this comment all right start q a all right there we go so there's there's my q a chat and there's the regular chat that i can kind of see as we're going hi critics hey everybody usual suspects in the chat here uh, very happy everybody is joining us, uh, joining me this morning. Uh, wild times, huh? Good times. Oh, thank you. I, I like the shirt too. I think I got it for, uh, my, uh, Mel got this for me. <laughs> okay. Let's see here. I have now, um, what I'm looking at, let me tell you guys, uh, what I'm looking at doing here as far as the the Q&A from last week, you know, there were so many people going, oh, live, 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 that's the way to go. And not a lot of people saying, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> so what I thought I would do, and I'm sort of thinking this through still, but again, I want your feedback. Even if you're watching this not live later on, let me know. Um, I'm trying to sort of think about maybe merging these two formats where I just go live, but bring in pre pre you know, set questions as well. I've got three of them today. You'll see uh, as we go through this today. And I was also thinking about maybe, possibly, um, switching this show to Saturdays. So if I do it live every week, I do it on Saturday, which is the same day I drop my Speaking of Cults podcast, um, but that's fine. You know, two pieces of, of video work from me in a day rather than Saturday, Sunday, but you let me know Would it would, you know, would you rather have it the way that it's been? Or uh, if I flip this over to live every week on Saturday and that way, um, I don't know. I just uh, get a little bit more time off, I guess, on Sundays um, is sort of why I was thinking about maybe making the switch. But um, also, I thought maybe there might be more people around to watch on Saturdays. I don't know. Uh, again, you let me, guys, you you let me know. There it is, testing Laura Waldie's, uh test showed up here in the um, queue. There it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, no way Sunday has to stay. Okay, cool. Well, you guys let me know, uh, like I said in the comments here, about all of these crazy ideas that I have. Oh, let's turn that off again. Okay, good. Sunday, Sunday. All right, cool. All right, good. Well, we, I, that's, like I said, this is not any kind of, I'm just throwing this out as ideas, okay? Um, okay, so let's get into uh, questions, but you got to put them where Laura put them there, where she wrote test. <laughs> that's, that's where you got to put the questions so that I can see them. Um, now, why don't we go ahead, since we're all kind of here and getting going, um, why don't we go ahead and flip over to my uh, questions page. There it is. And um, let me throw this first question up. Okay, Um, so let's get started. Peter Putz, uh, and this is a question somebody sent me um, uh, through the email, right? You you can email me questions at any time at askchrishelton at gmail.com, and I will put them in my question queue, and then we will get them up this way during the live streams. Peter Putz. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about First Amendment auditing. It seems that the recent activities in Los Angeles have led to the test center on Hollywood Boulevard being closed at the moment. Mark, Claire, and Mike said in a video that they recently see more contacts being made with the Aftermath Foundation. And it seems like we might see legal action shining a light on the corruption of the LAPD through Scientology. All of those are good things. Yes, some of those activists are quite aggressive, and I personally don't like that style. However, not all activists are like that, and they seem to be having a meaningful impact. Okay, well, seems is definitely the key word there. Um, And let's talk about um, First Amendment auditing, I suppose, as an activity. That's what the question really is about. And there is, um, you know, even a uh, whole—we went over this in in one of my Friday night— Critical conversation shows a couple weeks ago, where I talked about protests and audits, but I didn't really. And, and and another person also mentioned this too to me, that I didn't really get deep onto the First Amendment auditing part of the question, uh, you know, because I got well, because I was distracted and stuff like that. So let me try to focus a little bit more on that aspect of it. Um, I think, and I have said for, for many, many years, that context is everything when it comes to evaluating the truth or falseness or goodness or badness of something. Something could be good in one context and not so great in another and really have no real effect or impact in another. What's going on matters matters. How you're going about doing it matters, right? Um, This is true of all things, and especially true of um, this activity called First Amendment audits. This is an activity where people will take a camera or recording device and go into a public area, generally speaking, a public area, although sometimes people do it in private corporations or private institutions as well, and the Church of Scientology is not a public institution. It is a private institution. But... You'll, the First Amendment audit activity comes out of the idea of uh, following or watching or monitoring the activities of police, government officials, um, you know, public servants, civil servants, things like that, uh, especially police officers, and and sort of following them around, filming them. Um, you know, checking, uh, testing the boundaries of what you can or cannot say to this individual, like a police officer, are they going to respond? Are they going to react? Are they going to arrest you? And the controversial aspect of this is that you want them to. You want some, you know, some pushback as the person doing the First Amendment audit. You're going there to prove that your First Amendment freedom to speak uh, rights are it, are being defended or upheld, and if if the cops come and arrest you, or you make a stink, or somebody tries to kick you out of their you know place of business or store or government property or something, ah, look, 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 they're denying my rights, they're taking away my rights. You know, okay. Um, there are places in the world where this where r- these rights are infringed upon on a regular basis. There are places in the world where people's um, Human rights and and civic rights are, uh, civil rights are uh, trampled. Just, you know, just that that happens. That happens all the time. And there are many, many instances across the United States of uh, police on camera violating people's rights. No doubt about it. So is that a good idea to go and expose that? You bet it is. It absolutely is a very, very good idea to expose corruption, illegality, uh, you know, people taking away other people's rights or using their authority in such a way that it violates people's rights. That's a, that, that should be exposed. But should it be created? Should instances like that be artificially created so as to test the boundaries? In other words, should you go out and be a complete asshat to people in order to show or demonstrate or prove that you can be should you go stalk and harass people just to prove that you can? That's where the context of this, of this activity switches. It, it, you can flip the script on this very, very quickly and go from somebody who is trying to be an advocate for human or civil rights and become a, jer- a complete jerk. And just be somebody who is actually a nuisance and a problem rather than a solution. The same person doing the same activity can fit both of those descriptions depending on how and when and where they're going about doing this activity. So it requires judgment. And we are all really, really apparently, especially online, uh, in the social media battles that go on these days, we are very, very, very lacking in critical nuance and judgment when it comes to this sort of thing, right? When is it good? When is it bad? We all have lots and lots of different ideas and viewpoints about this, depending on our past experience. You know, the cops messed me up. The cops came around and hassled me. And I want to see the cops, you know, get hassled. I want to see the cops uh, uncomfortable. I want to see the cops held accountable, you know, this kind of thing for when you have been done a wrong. But other people who have not been done or wrong are not going to look at it that way. They're going to look at it very differently. So are both points of view valid? Again, depends on who you ask Ask and when and how, under what circumstances, right? Um, so my answer after all of this, right, is, is it depends. It depends on whether it's a constructive, useful activity or not. Um, it depends a great deal on how it's being done, why it's being done, and the way it's being done. And as you mentioned, some people are quite aggressive in the way that they go about doing these activities, these protests or First Amendment audits or whatever you want to call it. There's also the additional factor with First Amendment auditing of – a frauditing, uh, which is a term that's uh, that's mentioned in the Wikipedia article on First Amendment audits. And I encourage you to go read the entire article because it offers a, a degree of nuance about this activity as well as the history of it and how it's been used and where it's been used. And it's quite interesting. And you can see links to other more detailed articles about it. Um, so you have frauditing. You have people who are just going out just to, you know, get attention. And this is now the world that we live in is an attention economy. People are paid to be paid attention to. Uh, I mean, here I am on a channel trying to get you to pay attention to me, right? I mean, uh, here I am doing that. No question about it. Um, Now, is that all I'm doing? No, I'm not just sitting here making funny noises so that you will laugh and and super chat me. I am trying to educate and inform, right? there's a purpose to this activity. Whether I'm getting paid or not, there's something I'm trying to do that I believe is constructive and, and productive for people who come around and watch me. There are people who do First Amendment auditing for that purpose of really out there trying to expose some bad stuff. And then there are people who are just doing it because they know that it looks like it gives them virtue and gives them an air of of credibility. But in fact, they really couldn't care less about any of it. And I believe intention uh, matters. I believe that that does make a difference to the context of the situation, right? In other words, how do we judge this? Well, if you have somebody who's really out there trying to make a difference, that's one thing. If you got somebody who's, you know, kind of being the super aggressive asshole, you know, in people's faces, kind of violating their rights in in practicing the first amendment audit of, well, my rights are better than your rights or my rights take precedence over your rights. So I'm going to be such a jerk now that you're gonna have to pay attention to me and look at all these people on TikTok or YouTube or Twitch or wherever, who are now gonna watch me, you know, antagonize you, stalk you, and, and bother you, uh, and I'm the virtue signal. I'm the person who's actually the good guy in this scenario for being a complete asshole to you, right? Yeah, I think you get the point of what I'm saying here, and it's um, that's not something I would support at all, uh, any day of the week, I think that's I think that would be silly. And, in fact, I think that that would actually not look or sound or, in effect, for all practical purposes, right? I don't think that would be any different, doing that kind of antagonistic, in-your-face, you know, annoying, stalking stuff. How is that any different than what Scientology does to Leah or Mike or Tony or Karen or anybody else out there who's been fair-gamed? How is that any different? It looks and sounds exactly the same. So... That's why I'm harping about context. Uh, okay. And um, there we go. That's uh, I think that's pretty much about everything I want to say about that. So, um, oh, good. Questions pouring in here. Excellent. Um, so let's move on. Let's go back to our, let me, uh, sorry, got my buttons all over the place here. Let's turn that question off and let's go back to our, chat screen here okay um all right there we go and there's my questions some oh here we go okay um from jehovah's witnesses to declared apostate Chris, how do Christians react when they find out what L. Ron Hubbard said about Jesus, that he was an abuser? I've seen a multitude of different reactions to that statement from Christians, from, you know, sort of scoffing at it and blowing it off to, oh, my God, you know, being greatly offended, highly offended by it. Um, L. Ron Hubbard didn't mince words when it came to his ideas about the Christian God or uh, Catholic practice and how he said blatantly and openly that that organized religion, and especially referring to um, Christianity, is a control operation uh, exerted against populations. It's a population control mechanism that is utilized by bad actors uh, in order to you know, obviously control people. Um, and then it's filled with, you know, a bunch of lies and nonsense. And he then, as the years rolled out, this is back in the early mid-1950s, he was saying this way before any of the Xenu stuff. And then later in the 60s, when the Xenu story comes out, and there's a lot of other stuff too that are in lectures and non-confidential stuff, stuff you can look up and find. If you want to really uh, have it take a ride down the Scientology crazy train, go Google helitrobus implants. You'll have a time with that one. There's a whole lecture on it. Uh, Hubbard talks about how that's kind of, uh, in, in our memory, confused with concepts of heaven. Uh, this helotrobus implant thing. So there's there's a lot of written stuff even prior to the Xenu story. But in the Xenu story is where Hubbard says very, very clearly that um, all of religion, all of our concepts of religion, angels, devils, demons, God, Lucifer, all of that stuff, was implanted in us during that time that it's all just an, elab- an elaborate delusion to control uh, spiritual entities right Satans so how do Christians react to that they you know all, all, every range of, of reaction you would imagine they would have they have um, most of the time I don't see people you know lose their minds too much over this stuff um, but some Christians get really really offended at it yeah I've, I've seen that um Oh good. Uh, just as a comment here, ex Science says, "I loved your interview with Dr. Jessica Schleider you posted yesterday. I'm going to send the link to a friend in Loveland. She's been struggling with the Medicare system to get the help she needs. Thank you. You know, um, Dr. Yuval Leor also let me know that someone reached out to him after watching our recent episode about Hubbard and temporal lobe epilepsy. An ex-scientologist reached out to him to let him know that actually turns out or looks like his wife in real life might be suffering from uh, TLE. Um, raising awareness of these things uh, is important. It helps. Uh, I love hearing the feedback on this. My interview with Dr. Jessica Schleider that posted yesterday is, I think, one of the most in, I, I, I really like that interview and I really like Dr. Uh, Schleider's work. I think that uh, what we're addressing in the Friday show and in my interview with her yesterday, what is super, super important to the future of Cult Recovery I mean, I'm talking really important stuff, and it gets a couple hundred views. Meanwhile, drama, drama, drama gets thousands. Like, you guys, there's a perspective shift that really is necessary in this community about what's important here. And recovery and helping people get past all the trauma is what this space really needs to be about. And that's what I'm trying to contribute to with these interviews and these discussions. And Dr. Schleider's work is... It's it's really good, and there's a there's a book she put out uh, called Little Treatments, Big Effects uh, that just came out this last month that I think every single person coming out of a destructive cult needs to read. It's vital stuff. Um, anyway, I hope that you know putting it out there for you guys uh, will get more people looking at it because it's it, you know what are we doing this for, right? I, I'm 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 help. Let's get some help out there. All right. Um, OBG Foster, do you know the total number of people who have reached the state of clear? It's been 74 years. There should be, uh, how many right now? There should be millions by now. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, I, um, my clear number, I think I read it off my clear bracelet the other day was is like 42,000 something. and that was back in 1993. And then they uncleared everybody, you know, and had to reclear them, which really put a big, uh, you know, uh, if, if, if the number of clears was just kind of going, going going, and then suddenly crashed out because they took it all away and then they had to go back up. I don't even know if they've gone back up to reclear all the people that they took the clear status away from, much less making new clears and, and moving on that way. I mean, it's, you know, who, who how do they even keep track of this stuff? They dish out blocks of clear numbers to the churches that can make clears. So it's not really totally nailed how many there actually are. There's probably some way of finding it somewhere, I guess, if you, if you made enough phone calls and stuff. But it's definitely not millions of people. It's not even tens of thousands of people. Uh, well, I guess it is tens of thousands of people, but it's not. I don't even think it's hundreds of thousands of people who have necessarily reached the state of clear over all the years that Scientology's been around. Um, you know, when we know that 5% of Scientologists uh, make it to OT3, anyway, it's, uh, so what, maybe 10% make it to clear? You know, something like that, maybe 20% um not a lot of people and certainly no none of them not one of them making any profound impact on society or changing the world as a result of being clear no demonstrations of of improved or excelled a psychological ability or a healing ability or tele- telepathic ability or restoration of, you know, full access to memory so there's no trauma. No one is demonstrating any of this stuff, but everything I just said is what Hubbard described as the state of clear all the way back from 1950 forward. So it's all just, you know, stuff and nonsense. All right, but good question. Um, okay, let's go to another let me discipline myself here and keep my head about me to go to the next question uh from the pre-questions here. Let's go to number two. okay, Steve Wood. I hope this I hope the show's going okay so far i'm not I'm totally not in tune with what's happening in the comments box. Steve Wood I'm currently reading Mike Render's book and I'm on the part where every Thursday the executives have to send in their results that each org has and if they do well that's called an upstat and not so not well downstat. Uh, well clearly week after week uh, week after a week it must be a downstat because Scientology is not expanding. Therefore, my question is, what do you believe the rank-and-file Sea Org employees think each week of such dismal results? Do they think Scientology is growing because it surely isn't from my point of view, or are they so taken in by DM's bullshit that they really do believe they are winning? So please help me understand this. Okay, here's what you need to to get about Sea Org and Scientologists, but Sea Org especially, and statistics, and I, I'm going to try to make this like really simple and, and and to the point here in answering this one, Steve. The entire mindset of Sea Org members is that Scientology needs to expand and grow in order for their life to have meaning and purpose. That's the only reason they're in the Sea Org is to expand and grow Scientology. That is, and and forward, uphold, forward, and carry out command intention which is what David Miscavige wants. Whatever he wants, that's command intention. That's their life. That is every, you know, everything Sea Org members are doing or are being ordered and forced to do. If they kind of get in a frame of mind where they don't want to do this anymore, then it's going to be, you know, stockades and 50 lashes and all that. But when they're in the mindset, when you're in a Sea Org Scientology, clearing the planet command intention mindset, then you got to understand it's a radically different mindset than the one that you or I are in now. We're able to think, we're able to make choices, we're able to, to. And when I, but when I say think, I, you know, I don't mean that harshly. I mean we're able to think beyond certain choices. Our choices are not bound as Janja Lawich talks about, right? We have, a, 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 we can make decisions to, you know, I could, go, I could get up from this live stream and I could go to McDonald's and have a burger or I could go to the park or I could watch TV or I could write or I could just sit here and do nothing. You know, there's an, there's an infinite array of things I could do that I have the choice to make. Sea Org members don't have those choices, Sea members have a very limited number of things. You could probably count it on one hand, how many things they can do in a day. And they think that in a very limited way. These are their options. So then on top of that, There's another layer to being a Sea Org member, which is that everything that's going on in Scientology and out, everything that's going on in the world, everything that's going on inside Scientology, and especially everything that's going on on your job, on your post, as they call it, is your responsibility. It's 100% your responsibility. It's not David Miscavige's responsibility. It's yours. It's not Elrond Hubbard's responsibility. It's yours. That's why you're here as a Sea Org member. So if things aren't going right, if statistics are not going up, it's not your job to sit there and go, well, Scientology sucks, and this just isn't happening, and David Miscavige isn't leading as well. That's not your job. As a Sea Org member, your job is to make it go right, to get off your ass and do something about it, to go get the statistics up. However you need to do that, that's your job. So it's if you were found as a Sea Org member sitting around going, ah, these stats, ah, we're not just, this, this, this isn't happening. I just don't get it. David Muscat. Ah, you'd be tarred and feathered before the day was done, right? Because you're not doing your job. And the entire attitude of a Sea Org member is not look outside myself for reasons why things aren't going well. It's look inside myself for reasons why things aren't going well. If the stats aren't going up, I'm not making them go up. Why? Because of my overts. Because of my sins. Because I'm not doing my job properly, because I'm not coordinating effectively, because I don't know my job, maybe. If I'm really going to go out, you know, and I be, um, what's the word, um, charitable. If I'm going to be charitable toward the Seorg Org member, right, then I'm going to say, hey, maybe you don't know what you're doing. Let's get you, let's get you, you know, trained up on what to do so you know how to get your stats up. Right? If I'm being charitable, maybe I'll assign it to this individual's inability to uh, know what they're, you know, they just don't know what they're doing. But after you're trained on what to do, if you're not getting the stats up, that's on you. And you better get to work. And if that means you're not going to bed tonight, I I don't care. Get to work. Right? It's that kind of attitude. And the Sea Org members take that onto themselves. And own that responsibility and, and make it their own, even though it's not, it's, it, it doesn't, the real world doesn't work that way. Right. But that's how cults and especially, you know, Scientology and the Sea Org, that's how they work. Cause it's basically, again, another way of putting this is right. It's right back to you. It's why aren't you getting the stats up? It's, it's, it, it, it's your responsibility. It's your fault, right? That's, kind of what I'm trying to get across. So there you go. All right. Yes. All right. Let's go back to our chat screen. And um, I don't know why the chat is disappearing when I go off the screen that way. But uh, whatever. Let's go. It'll come back on in a second, I think. Let me just take a look here. Oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Now I'm not seeing the Oh, there we go. Okay, yeah. I don't know why it resets or or blanks out. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to investigate that. Okay, but as far as uh the next question in the queue goes, let's go ahead and find that. Here we go. From Jehovah's Witnesses to Declared Apostate. Chris, when you were making $50 a week, was your family able to send you extra money to help you get by? Yeah. Um, Well, not when I was in the Sea Org. Okay. Yes, when I was a staff member in Santa Barbara, it was very much that way. Uh, For the first year, year and a half that I was on staff making like $10 to $20 to $30 a week, my parents were basically supporting me. They were sending me hundreds of dollars a month to um, make sure that I was eating and, you know, and had a place to stay and stuff. Um, Definitely supported by family. Once I, then that's, then they kind of, you know, had to come to a, hey, look, we kind of need to stop doing this, right? You need to go get a job because I didn't actually even have yet another job. I was just working full time at the Santa Barbara Org. Uh, So that, you know, that wasn't flying for me. So when I came to join the C organization, though, that's, that was a different thing. My parents, um, very rarely did they send me money, you know, birthday, Christmas, stuff like that. But otherwise, a couple times, a couple times I got some money uh, from my mom, um, but not often and not not routinely. And it would be the sort of thing that, you know, the C organization. Ethics people would keep an eye on that kind of thing. If you're getting if you are getting money or resources from outside the Sea Org while you're in the Sea Org, that's called an external influence. And it's a very, very bad thing because that means somebody outside our little cloistered bubble world is having an influence on you. Can't have that. Right? The only influence on your mind should be from within the bubble world, not from outside. That's a distraction at best. And um, treasonous conduct at worst right so there's that okay um, Scion asks will there be a Scientology commercial during the Super Bowl game today I believe if it's run the way it has been being run for years and years um, you may or may not see the C- see the Scientology Super Bowl commercial because they get they what the way they distribute it, is they pay local market rates in local markets they'll go to the local stations in Atlanta or Denver or Los Angeles or Seattle places they have ideal orgs are where they tend to focus their marketing budget and they will pay for ads on local TV for to show their Super Bowl ad rather than paying the NFL or the or whoever is you know the the production company for the Super Bowl And the marketing company for the Super Bowl, they're not paying the big, you know, mega million dollar ads to show everybody who's watching. They're only, you know, getting ad buys in the local markets. Um, So that's how that operates, Anthony. So watch for it. You may see it. I'll be watching for it later. Um, Okay, let's see what else we got here. All right, spinster asks, "What do you think about Mike Render's response to Miriam Francis's coming forward about her uh, essay experience?" Um, I think that that is the sort of thing that I don't want to talk about on this channel. Um, but I will say that I thought Mike's response was thorough, complete, and I um, support Mike in his uh, efforts in this. I um, that's where I'm. That's where I'm sort of saying. I also support Miriam in her efforts to find justice and peace for herself and get over the trauma and, you know, all the stuff that that comes with. I have um, very much tried to support her in her journey with that, Um, and I'm very sad that there is that conflict that is occurring right now because I actually like both people and want both people to do well, and I really, it bothers me that there is that fighting going on. Um, that's what I have to say about that. Okay. Um, Anthony Spurgeon, did people ever try to bolt from the room when you were auditing them? No, I never had anybody try to blow a session. That's what they would call it, right? Try to leave, take off, uh, forcefully get out of the room, right? um i tried once <laughs> i think i tried once or twice to get out of the room i was just like not into it um but i was i was really upset during both of those times um but no nobody ever tried to blow when i was auditing them no that that didn't that didn't happen no okay um laura Waldy asks uh, chris are you aware of any studies done on the brains of ex-cult members and those who have not been in one, I'm wondering if a child forced to work for a cult from a young age develops differently. Um, Laura, I am not aware of any specific studies or brain analysis done of cult versus non-cult members. However, I am aware of studies done on children and adults of um, uh, survivors of childhood trauma and uh, you know, work done to do brain imaging on that sort of thing. It's um, – I'd have to dive into the literature to get more detail for you than that. I know such studies have been done when it comes to trauma and PTSD and stuff like that and complex PTSD. But I can't, But no, I'm not aware of cult-specific studies for trauma or uh, measuring brain differences in that way. I'm aware of, of sociopathy and psychopathy being brain-imaged for differences, you know, between normies, uh, stuff like that. But uh, otherwise, no, not seeing that. The cult field, to be super clear uh, from academia's point of view, is contentious controversial and extremely niche, very, very niche field. I, I don't think it should be, but it is. Um, it's it, A lot of people have a lot of contentious opinions about the concepts of uh, mind manipulation, brainwashing, thought reform, even that tries you know even trying to get that over to people can be quite a daunting task they don't want to hear it they don't believe in it they don't think it's true they don't think that's possible um and there's a lot of ignorance in this field uh about that in academia right especially when you go over into the religious studies and sociology guys right they really get clueless about this stuff the psych guys and the therapy people tend to get it more because they deal with it they see it and they see its effects Um, but I can't speak too deeply to brain studies being done on cult versus non-cult members because I've never seen one done uh, on that basis. Um, I've seen a lot of studies being done and brain imaging being done on trauma, essay, stuff like that, though. Definitely see that. Uh, Okay. Yeah, we got a lot of work still to do in this field, so much work to do. Okay. Okay. Ex-Scientology. Does Scientology categorize any of Hubbard's works as theory, or is all of it considered factual knowledge? Um, hmm. Um, hmm. The reason I'm coming and hooing right now <laughs> is because... There are places where, yeah, I was sort of hemming and hawing because there's places where L. Ron Hubbard says, look, just because I say this is true doesn't mean I'm perfect in applying it either. But that's a kind of a whole different concept. That's sort of him addressing his hypocrisy. Pretty much... You know, Hubbard does say that there are places in Scientology where he labels things as his opinion, where it's just his take on things. It's not necessarily axiomatic, you know, universal law or truth. There are such distinctions made within the body of Scientology literature. Kind of few and far between, though, from what I remember. So much of Scientology writing and lecturing is from this very sure, very like this is how it is. These are the laws, this is how it goes together, and you know, and that would be that would be fine if he was a little bit more specific and a little less maundering and generalized in the way he goes about talking about stuff. The examples Hubbard gives, the analogies and 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 uh, stories he tells. They're so broad and they're so generalized and the things he, you know, that that you're just kind of like, okay, I think he's just sort of like, you know, riding this this the stream of consciousness thought train as he's talking to me right now. He's not really going one, two, three, four like a lecturer in a science class would, you know. It's such a different way of, of of giving the data across. That it kind of lends itself to this sort of opinionated take on things, but then you're supposed to draw out of that these facts and laws about the universe. I, I hope I'm making sense. It's a little convoluted um, trying to pick out the, you know, the, 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 this is the actual universal truth, and this is L. Ron Hubbard's opinion. They, they, they mesh and meld together a lot in the, in the literature, right? And the the Scientology literature. So, yeah, you know, so no, not every single thing that Hubbard ever said anywhere is considered literal truth in Scientology. You know, just 98% of it. (laughs) Okay. So yeah, it's kind of like that. Um, Okay, I think you already asked and answered this one, Jova's uh, Witness, on the $50 thing, so we'll move on. Um, already gave my answers on the Miriam-Mike Render thing. Don't really have a lot more to say about that, except that, quite honestly, all the noise and that is being generated around that and opinions and ideas and attitudes about it, I, I really don't think any of that is anybody's business. Uh, this be this is a legal thing that should be being dealt with that way. Um, again, my off-the-cuff thoughts about that, right? I, I'm not going to get into the details of it, though. It's not what this channel is about. Um, have I thought, X-Lion, have you thought about interviewing Jenna Miscavige Hill? What would that be like? I, I'm not really sure what that would be like, but I have not thought about doing that. Her story was so thoroughly investigated and told her book, says everything there is to say there and she was literally all of that happened before I even came on the scene if I remember right timing wise and I just never connected with her because she kind of retired from the community it's only very recently that that she's kind of come back in any public way she she went away and she did not want to be talked to or talk to anybody and that and so I never did um at this point I I'm not sure that I would pursue that interview um because I'm trying to wind down, <laughs> like I said, on the Scientology stuff and move out to broader stuff is the only real resistance you're running to from me, not necessarily the individual involved. Um, okay, let's see. Yeah, you guys got a lot of questions for me about Miriam and Mike. I, I, I've I said what I'm going to say about that, okay? Um J.B. and Andio, what would you say to L.R.H. if he was still alive and mentally sound? How much time do I have? Hmm. I mean, after I finish cussing him out, I don't know that I would have a lot more to say to the man. I would have a lot of questions, though, about the occult. I'd have a lot of questions about magic. I'd have a lot of questions about his views about Aleister Crowley, about where he learned hypnotism. That's a question I have. I have a lot of questions for him that would be a lot of fill-in-the-blank kind of questions. I want to ask him about that 1969 interview with that BBC reporter who came down and talked to him. Uh, in Granada, right? Did that whole black and white, uh, you know, Scientology documentary thing that nobody uh, seems to know too much about. Scienti- in other words, Scientology doesn't acknowledge it. I never even heard about it until after I got out of Scientology that this whole interview even existed. Um, there's a lot of questions I have about that. Um, so I'd ask him a lot of questions, actually. I'd, I'd, have, I'd have more questions than I would say things to him. Um, but I don't think I'd be able to sit down in a room with L. Ron Hubbard without giving him a piece of my mind first. And I don't know that you guys would necessarily want to hear all of the expletives that I would utter uh, in what I would have to say to him, <laughs> actually, because it would be quite the tirade. Um, I'm, I, you know I have gotten over... Over a lot of these years, a lot of anger towards that man. Um, but I never said it was all gone. <laughs> I just said I know how to deal with it now. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, I don't know. That's that's what comes to mind. Um, all right. Let's. Oh, we have. I, I don't want to uh, miss this one. So, um. Let's see here. I have another. I wanted to get to the last question that I had from the queue. So let me bring that one up. Okay, because I thought you guys might kind of enjoy this one. Uh, Michael Yoder asked me, Zenu is often portrayed as a green, big-headed, large-eyed alien. Is there anywhere in the scriptures where Hubbard described what he looked like? And if so, what did he say? Or are the portrayals just conjecture based on the usual space aliens? Okay, there is an awful lot of conjecture out there. I've even put shirts together uh, with Xenu, and I just took a little like, an alien figure from Legos <laughs> and used that to, uh, for Xenu. And there have been other cartoon and South Park uh, impressions of Xenu, but... In the scriptures of Scientology, I could not find a description of him. But you know where I did find a description of him? In L. Ron Hubbard's fiction work, uh, Revolt in the Stars. Okay, you remember that one? Uh, We did a whole takedown on that thing. And, um, oh, I love Revolt in the Stars. And I actually pulled it up and have it here on my screen. I don't have it for you, but I'm going to read you the descriptions because there's only a couple of them. There are three places where L. Ron Hubbard, in the uh, writing of Revolt in the Stars, which is a fictionalized version of the fictionalized story of Xenu, uh, he describes Xenu by name and describes him. So first, on page 13 of the, of the PDF I have of Revolt in the Stars... It's sort of a, it's, it's supposed to, it's not a screenplay really what I have. It's more of a sort of a treatment, but it's really kind of put together more like a short story or novella. It's 105 pages. Um, it, it's not a screenplay. I guess there's a screenplay version of this somewhere, but I have only got this, this other version. So uh, you can download this. You can find this on the internet. Revolt in the Stars. It's, it's Hubbard telling the Xenu story as a movie he intended to make without the body thetans in it. The, the spirits and body thetans and implants and all of that aspect of the story has been removed. It's only Xenu and the genocide. That's the story that's told in Revolt in the Stars. So how is Xenu described? Xenu, bitter-faced, sardonic, leaning heavily on a cane that was more like a club, limped forward to the front edge of the draped railing. Uh, that he glared down at the st- at the stalled group on the concourse below and did not like what he saw, the dark somberness of his civilian suit, the darkness of his hair and face seemed to spread outward. The uh, yeah, the cheering below dimmed off to silence. So there's the first and most descriptive description of Zenu physically. Okay, uh, what we have. After that is, let's see here, page 15 and 18. So on page 15, we have, oh, yes, then later on, he sits at a wide desk in a somber black robe, um, backed by the glittering seal of the Confederation, Sat Xenu, Supreme Ruler, okay? And so he goes from a civilian suit to a black robe, and then on page 18, we have um, not much here. Came in a gray uniform. Da, 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 da. Oh, yes. He came to Zenu's right and stood there. Oh, no, that's somebody else. Sorry, my bad. Um, oh, here we go. Xenu was hard-eyed. He clamorously struck the gong. He gestured urgently toward the curtains and the crier. That's it. That's all we got. In terms of a physical description, that's what, what I've read is pretty much all there is. Um, so Hubbard twice used the word sardonic to describe Xenu. Just kind of an odd word. You don't hear that word used often to describe people. So I looked it up because I was like, what does this look like? And... Uh, that's what it looks like. (laughs) That's sardonic. (laughs) So I guess Xenu kind of looks like that dude. Um, But he's got a a cane that looks like a club and he dresses in uh, civilian outfits and uh, regular clothes. And that's our boy Xenu. So um, yeah. So there you go. To the chat, okay. Oh, and the chat did not reset this time. How weird! I'm gonna have to figure this whole chat thing out. Um, yeah, no, club like Kane that's what he that's what he wrote. Yeah, I read, I read it to you straight from the scriptures, right? Uh, yeah, they're definitely, definitely, uh, hum- humanoid in appearance, they look like people, right? Hubbard's characters from the um, uh, from in in his fiction and in his Scientology stuff. a lot of humanoid forms throughout the cosmos here. And uh, the earth bodies that we've evolved or developed here are pretty much the same as the bodies they've used in other civilizations. Uh, Although there, although Hubbard does talk about other forms of meat bodies or, you know, uh, animal like bodies, cat bodies and, you know, things like that that have existed on uh, in the past as well. Yeah. I kind of prefer the Cthulhu look too. I mean, You know, if you can choose the greater evil. Uh, Okay, so that's that. Uh, Let's go on here. Oh, this is a great question. Bladen Kudik asks, uh, how much latitude do ethics officers have in choosing the proper handling for PCs in an ethics cycle? Are specific handlings laid out in their post-training just apply conditions as they see it? They have all kinds of latitude, but generally speaking, there's a specific set of tools that ethics officers will use in order to deal with the people in front of them. Um, if somebody's coming to see an ethics officer for lapses in, in their behavior or following the codes of Scientology or or, or they've you know committed transgressions, um, conditions are absolutely one of the key tools that ethics officers will use to deal with people, right? You, you do a condition, you get through the formula, you do the next formula, you do the next one, and you rise up these conditions. Uh, and the lower conditions are, are wholly subjective, pretty much. Uh, so they're really, you know, just messing with your head. Uh, I'm talking about the treason formula and the, the enemy formula and doubt formula, right? Find out who you really are is the condition formula for the condition of enemy. So you get handed a ream of paper and sat down in a room and said, find out who you really are. Start, right? And you're like, okay. <laughs> and you got to write that at the top. And then you start monologuing and writing, right? Okay. Well, how, who am I really? What am I really all about? Right? And you go on this whole introspective journey. That's the conditions. Okay, that's the Scientology conditions, and, and there's a number of them. And they're a real mind fuck, those things. They really are. So, and then an ethics officer may or may not leave you alone in the room. The ethics officer might sit there with you, and from their understanding of what those formulas mean, right, they're going to direct you and guide you through where they want you to get to or go. Um, They could also just have you write down all of your moral transgressions, right, all your overts and withholds. Just sit here in the room, start writing. Um, They will often give people a copy of L. Ron Hubbard's Code of Honor uh, or L. Ron Hubbard's uh, book, The Way to Happiness. And they will say, here's your guide, write up your overts and withholds against what it says in these materials, right? So if you have not been brushing your teeth, if you have been murdering people, if you have been stealing, if you have been, uh, you know, not supporting a government uh, run by all the people, right? Whatever the way to happiness precepts are. I'm, I'm being very uh, joking and degrading right now. Um, but that kind, of, uh, that kind of thing, right? You will do an OW write-up and then they'll stick you on the e-meter and make sure your needle is floating when you're done with that OW write-up. Um, that could be a tool that's used. Or they could just choose as an ethics authority to talk at you or talk to you, right? Have an interview, have a conversation, Um, put you on the meter, ask you sharp and pointed questions to try to dig up what it is you've been up to. There's lots of tools ethics officers have at their disposal to invade your privacy, dig dig around in your, you know, uh, soul and Uh, and keep, you know, digging around in there until they've got you twisted around like a pretzel to how they want you so that everything's your fault, you're to blame for everything, and you've accepted that blame, and you're uh, not a victim. You were never a victim. You were always the one who was in charge and at cause, and so every bad thing that's ever happened to you is your fault, and we're going to keep working this over until you get there, right? That's kind of the ethics side of Scientology in a nutshell, Basically, I mean, there's more to it than that, but basically that's it. So, um, yes, they are trained in their post duties uh, in these various tools. And uh, the high-level ethics officers are trained on the e-meter and are trained to even do sec-checking confessionals themselves. So that's, and those, and there's a whole higher level of training that an ethics officer can go through. I'm trying to remember right now. Um, where they get a new title, magistrate. They can do magistrate training. It's a long list of courses and training they have to do to pull that off, but that's the highest level ethics officer you can be in Scientology is magistrate. Yeah, sounds, sounds wild, huh? Um, okay. Good, good, good. Yeah, Supreme Leader Snoke. That's right. (laughs) Okay, Fabian. Now, what do you do for sport not being a Thetan any longer? I play, I I assume you're referring to me. I play uh, video games. I go take walks with my dog and my wife. I watch movies. Oh, by the way, I have a um, a recommendation for you all in terms of uh, entertainment uh, totally non sequitur to anything we've been talking about so far, um, but I just am so taken with this creator. There's a guy named Mike Flanagan. I'm just catching up. I know I am years behind. Um, he is a horror movie maker and writer, and this guy is amazing. I mean, I'm blown away. I just finished. We just finished watching uh, "Follow the House of the Usher" of ha- "Fall of the House of Usher." We're finishing off Midnight Mass, that limited series, and then I've got like all of the rest of his work to go through. I've seen some of his earlier work without totally, uh, without understanding who I was watching. Um, uh, But this new, his, you know, as he's been going through his career making these uh, movies and TV shows and stuff, he just gets better and better and better. Midnight Mass is not just a horror series; it is one of the best sort of analyses of the of the subject of religion that I have seen in an entertainment format. Oh, it's brilliant. Really good stuff. And Follow the House of the Usher was oh really good analysis of society, psychosis, family dynamics, trauma. There was so much in it. Ah, oh, I loved it. Anyway, I just gotta um since you asked me what do I do for sport, I watch stuff like this. Um ah, oh, love this stuff. So Anyway, just going to recommend some Can't Get Enough Mike Flanagan. Um, Okay, did you see many people, Fabian asked, did you see many people go crazy after finding out about the BTs all around them? Um, Yes, I did. Yeah, I actually did. I didn't realize what I was looking at when I was in the Sea Org and I was looking at people who were, you know, going, uh, what you might call, uh, what might you call it, I mean, in Scientology, we called it overstimulated, over re-stimulated. right? They, they, they we, we, you know, they weren't ready for it or something, right? Um, but that's bullshit. That's not what was going on, right? We were just uh, inducing, you know, sort of psychotic episodes in them is what was happening. And I, I say we in a very loose sense because I didn't deliver OT levels. I, I worked at an advanced org, but I didn't do that part of it, Um Thankfully, I'm really glad I did not, because that is some of the, the you know, some of, amongst some of the worst mindfuckery in Scientology are those OT levels. I'd say actually the worst. Uh, concentrated gaslighting is the truth rundown, but very, very, very few Scientologists receive that as, as compared to the OT levels, and even the OT levels, only five percent of Scientologists are getting those. So it's, it's really hardcore stuff, and it messes with your head in significant ways. Um, and definitely can you know can induce uh, some narcissism and and all kinds of other stuff as well as the other manipulative stuff it's doing to your to your will and your ability to exert your will uh, that kind of thing ah oh, um, so did I see many people go crazy after finding out not many people but I did see it I saw people take off from OT three. I saw people um, who definitely had. I'm thinking about two or three people that I encountered over the years in the, in, the, in Scientology, not Sea Org members. These were public Scientologists who. All I can say is they had this this look in their eyes, and maybe you've seen it. You know, when somebody just kind of gets that. Eh, you know that kind of. There's a, for lack of better terminology, right? It's just that sort of like dazed, crazed look. That sort of. There's something electric going on behind the eyes, but they're kind of shiny. They're kind of, <laughs> kind of look. I, I I've I've encountered Scientologists like that, uh, who were on their OT levels. It was a little scary. It was a little. Ooh, what's what's up with that, right? I hope they, hope something good happens. You know, it was it was weird, and I and I and, and again, I had no, I, I had a very different way of contextualizing that at the time than I do now. I didn't look at it then like I look at it now. So this is all very much hindsight. Uh, of, of describing this to you. At the time, I I saw it differently. I saw somebody who was struggling, who, needed, who was in the middle of their auditing, and they needed to get through it, and I would encourage them to do so because I thought Scientology auditing was the solution to everything, including the sort of dazed, glassy-eyed look they had. Um, I just thought they weren't done with their auditing yet, and when they finished it, things would be fine. That's how I thought about the world, right? So it was a very night and day kind of attitude about it. Now I look back on it and I'm horrified. Like, oh, my God, I wish I had known to say, why don't you take a break for a little while, you know? Why don't you go take a vacation or something? Or why don't you go away for a little while and leave the Scientology behind? You know, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me to, to say things like that to them at the time. So, all right, uh, great questions today. Yes, Liz, uh, when they uncleared everybody, did that apply to the OT8s? Does anyone know how they reacted? Yeah, and they reacted very badly almost across the boards. There were, I mean, nobody was happy about having their clear state taken away from them. There were, I mean, maybe one or two people I heard about who were like, oh, yeah, I knew it. I knew I wasn't clear. Thank you, right? I mean, there were a couple people who had that reaction, but the vast majority of people who were told. And they were, and it was all the way up to OT eight that they were told this. They were pissed. I heard about things being thrown across the room. I heard about chairs being broken. Um, I heard about desks being overturned. I heard about people just throwing the cans at the person saying that and storming out of the out of the not only out of the room out of the building. I mean, they were furious. Uh, they you know, and people chasing them down the street right to stop them. Um, I heard about some really, really nasty reactions and I came into it after the fact of a lot of that happening because I had been, um, not, I hadn't been, I hadn't been posted at the AO. I'd been somewhere else. So, um... So I it was with great trepidation that I entered into doing these non-clear R factors that's what it was called. In Scientology when you tell somebody something they don't know in a formal way you're giving them what's called an R factor, a reality factor. Right? Let me tune up your reality right now by giving you this R factor. That's it's a it's a term in Scientology. So the non-clear R factor was the was the title for the interview I'm about to go do on this person where I'm gonna give them the bad news that they're not clear anymore. And you never ever knew what to expect. The 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 smallest, kindest, most compassionate little grandmotherly women could just become like you know, these dragon beasts, right? And these great big guys could collapse in tears and just be and just be puddles in front of you, or the other way around. Right? You never knew what you were going to get uh, when you talked to somebody about this and gave them the right. Um, but OT eights all the way to, you know, not yet on their OT levels. Ah, uh, most of them really, really upset. Yeah. Okay. Um, from Jehovah's Witnesses to declared as uh, apostate. Will Osa go after the Hubbard family if they were to say anything negative about Scientology? Yeah, absolutely, they have. Uh, there are decades of uh, stalking and harassment of L. Ron Hubbard's own son, Nibs, Ron Hubbard Jr. Um, he helped L. Ron Hubbard through the 1950s uh, run the organization, probably wrote issues himself. It's said he might have even wrote the Upper Indoc TRs and the TRs issues. Um, you know, real basic fundamental stuff in Scientology that his son directly contributed to. And in 1959, his son took off, along with uh, about 10 or 11 other Scientologists. And Hubbard was furious and engaged in 20, the next 10, 25 years until Nibs died. Uh, he was pursued and... Um, I mean, stalking and harassment doesn't even begin to describe what was done to that man. You know, it was Paulette Cooper level fair gaming. It was a, it was like he, it was these were like the OG fair game victims, right? These L. Ron Hubbard's own family, his own son, um, the whole family line, right? I mean, everything after that, uh, it was, it was horrifying what he did to his own family. Um, L. Ron Hubbard was a monster when it came to that. And his organization uh, held back nothing when it came to going after him. So the answer to the question is yes. They very much, L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology very much uh, went after Hubbard's family who were speaking out. Yeah. Uh, John O'Nolan, what do you think of Chinese superstitions like lucky numbers and bad luck numbers? I think that that is a silly idea. That's what I think. I think assigning, um, you know, an increased amount of responsibility or importance to symbols and numbers uh, in our lives is ultimately uh, confirmation bias and kind of silliness. That's what I think, right? Um, You know, you want 13 to be an unlucky number. So it's kind of like, you know, when you put your attention on a thing, suddenly you're more aware of it than when your attention isn't on it. And so, you know, suddenly 13 shows up everywhere and, oh, it's so bad. It's always so awful, right? It's just confirmation bias. I don't, I, I don't really get into that very much. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, another one here from Jove's Witnesses. Uh, Did your mom or dad finish the OT levels? Have they kept any Scientology beliefs? Um, yes, my mom finished up through OT level five. My dad finished up through OT level seven. My mom is completely, totally, and thoroughly, and 100% gone and out of Scientology, doesn't want to have anything to do with it, and has uh, gotten rid of the entire mindset. My dad is out of Scientology, doesn't want to have anything to do with the church itself. Um, Both of them, by the way, rather advanced in age. Um, My father uh, still believes in the tech of Scientology. He and I don't really talk about it much because we agree to disagree, and we're totally fine with that. Um, But that's where he's at, right? So he's out of the church. He's not even hooked up with other independent Scientologists. I don't even call him an independent Scientologist. Maybe I should, but he's not like he's doing a lot of practice with it. He just believes in it, right? So that's where my folks are at. Um, The Elk of Antioch. Do Sea Org members who have completed OT3 ever believe they are loyal officers who overthrew Xenu or discuss it? It's implied. The Sea Org motto is, we come back. And L. Ron Hubbard, and there are stories that are told throughout the Sea Org over the years of this time when Elron Hubbard gathered a bunch of Sea Org members, the OG guys, back in the day in the 1967, 1968, on the deck of the Apollo and pointed up to the stars and said, hey, guess what, guys? We've all been together before. And we come back. Right, that's what this is all about, and it's all, of course, the entire emphasis and and sort of implication of that entire story uh, was that you know we were uh, the loyal officers, right, who were fighting against Zenu and the dark forces and the uh, the what did he call them the um, rogues? He called them something else. Anyway, he had a name for these uh, these roguish elements, right? Um, they were... I'll get it. Anyway, um, so, yes. in an answer, you know, basically, yes. But they don't really talk about it much. And they never talk about OT3. Um, no one who's gone on to the OT levels talks about the OT levels with other people who have done the OT levels. You're not supposed to do that. You're, you, what happens in session stays in session. And you don't talk about it with other people in a public or even private way, even when they're in a private room with the doors locked. OTs don't sit there talking to each other about XenU. One, it's not that important to them, and two, it's confidential and it's and it's uh, and, and you're breaking the rules, right? You're not supposed to be talking about your case. you're auditing the things that happened to you in session, uh, and you're certainly not supposed to be banding about confidential terms out loud even in a locked room, right? That's that. It was always hush, hush. Nope, nope. Don't talk about this. Uh, not just to the people who haven't done the levels, but even amongst people who have. Okay. Um, hey, we're just kind of cruising right along here. We sort of went over our our time and just kind of kept going, huh? Let me check in here and see how we're doing. Yeah, still got everybody on board. So it seems like it's good. Um Don't see anybody tearing each other apart in the comments, so let's carry on for a little bit more (laughs) and see uh, what other questions you have since there's such good ones here today. Um, OBG Foster, did the so-called IQ test keep some people in grunt work jobs forever? Also, were grunt work jobs actually less toxic? That's an interesting question. No. No, I don't think it was the IQ tests or the testing that really kept people on their jobs or kept people into a, you know, me, menial labor type jobs. The way Scientology and the Sea Org tend to work is you get busted onto those jobs. Um, a lot not all the time some people gravitate towards secretarial work or toward you know central files or towards grounds work or stuff like that or they're trained in it and they get posted there engineering um, electrical work hvac stuff like that grounds work things like that is not is considered low level work but it's skilled labor right you have to have some skills in order to do that work working in the galley Excuse me, not so much. Nobody, hardly anybody, except unless you're a trained cook or something, aspires to work in the galley, right? It's pretty grunt work. Um, it, it, same with being a letter registrar or something, just sitting in a basement writing letters all day, right? Th- that work tends to go toward the people that you can spare or the people who are busted, right? It's kind of unsavory work. That's how it's thought about in that world. Okay, I'm not saying making food is unsavory work. I love cooking. I love making food. I don't consider it a low-level job. I'm talking about it from within the culture of the Sea Org now. Okay, this isn't how I think about it now. But in the Sea Org, the low-level stuff is, you know, if, if, if they're busted or if they can be spared, that's where they go. And if we need resources, that's where we look to draw them from. If they were busted... Okay, have they made up for the damage now? How long have they been there, right? If they were busted into, you know, groundskeeping and they were there for a year, okay, maybe they learned their lesson, right? Now maybe we can work on moving them back up the ladder. And that would be the personnel game, the shell game that we would have to play with personnel all the time because we had too many demands for personnel and too few bodies to fill all those demands. So it was a constant shell game of moving people around And so um, when you ask, did it keep people in grunt work forever? No, it didn't, because we were constantly trying to re-promote people or move people back up who had been busted or who were in these lower positions, because we didn't have anybody else to draw from, right? Because if you were going to take a skilled auditor out of an area, you got to replace him with an auditor, right? And you might as well, I mean, just use your replacement for that. So it... So it it was always, like I said, a bit of a shell game with this and playing with the qualifications. So that's uh, that's kind of where that's at. Um, young Matador. Hey, Chris, sorry I'm late to the party. You got any Super Bowl plans tonight? I am going to be watching the Super Bowl. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And um, uh, I guess if I had to... Uh, throw any Super Bowl drama out there for everybody today. I'm going to say that I am uh, uh, #hashtag Team Swift, <laughs> so I guess I'm uh, I'm rooting for uh, Kansas City. I think are they are they playing in the Super Bowl? <laughs> okay, uh, clapping, Kyle. Where do you think focus should lie to get an effective stop to Church of Scientology? People are doing a lot right now: protesting, making videos, writing articles, bringing lawsuits. Is it effective though? This is a great question. Thank you for asking me this. Um, I actually didn't keep the little post it note. I wrote these five things down on it. Let me see if I can do this from memory. Um, there are a number of ways to fight things we don't like in our society, and especially pushing back against illegal activities or traumatizing, uh, harmful, destructive activities like cults. There's lots of ways to do this. Um, Seeking or getting or somehow creating government intervention or public policy changes is one avenue of uh, activism or work that you can dedicate yourself full-time to. Public protesting is an activity that will raise awareness or bring awareness for short periods of time to anything. It doesn't have staying power, but it does work in short bursts. We know this historically speaking, right? But if it goes on too long, it becomes... um, Annoying to people, the message gets watered down, it becomes dispersed, and it becomes a problem. And that's why protests are good, short activities. Okay. Definitely have a place. Definitely. Um, I mean, hell, we've done whole shows about that here. Uh, Education. Okay, so getting educational materials out there, helping people recover from the experience of it is an avenue of approach to take To uh, deal with the fallout and consequences of destructive cult activity or coercive activity. Totally valid, totally real, totally good thing to be doing, right? That's kind of what I do, so of course I'm going to say it that way. (laughs) Um, uh, Exposure, right? Exposing abuses, exposing um, bad actors as bad actors, exposing predatory, manipulative organizations for who and what they are. That is a whole thing. It's it's akin to protesting, but it's not it's akin to education, but it's not kind of fits in between those two things. I've done an awful lot of that on this channel. Many, many, many other channels uh, across the boards in the cult spaces have been doing this work for many, many, many years. Lots of us. And we all have our different takes, and our different approaches, our different priorities, the, the different parts of it we invest in that is meaningful to us. Um, I've tried over the years to cover, like, everything on it one in one way or another. Uh, when you have a lot of time to do this and you have, you know, a lot of coverage of it, you can, you know, you can go very broad. Some people get hyper-specific on very certain, very particular things about what is damaging or harmful about it, like, you know, the, the stuff with kids or uh, the stuff with uh, sexual uh, violations or uh, human rights violations. You can go, you know, focus just on that aspect of it, um, not necessarily talk about the other parts of it. it. It's not good or bad. It's just what people do, right? There's different ways of, of going at that. Um, and then, of course, there is, as you mentioned, there is legal, right? Do, there is pursuing lawsuits. Uh, And pursuing criminal prosecution, two different things, two different areas of the law that you can pursue. You can get a lawyer and you can sue a cult or a group uh, for what it did to you or for what it did to other people. Or you could do a whole bunch of people and do a class action, less effective these days, but still doable. Or you can pursue criminal prosecution, in which case you need to get a Um, you know, a DA or, you know, uh, an AG or somebody interested at a federal county or state level and uh, or city level. Right. And you got to go to town on that and try to make your case and try to get them to then make a case and pursue, you know, that line of uh, of work. All of these things all of these things are necessary to eradicate the abuses and uh, problems of a destructive individual or organization, um, because none of them by themselves are going to necessarily expose and end all the abuses. You need—I think—you need to do all this stuff. Um, Preferably, these things would go together in such a way that they would gel, that they would that they would be a sort of a harmonious, you know, movement moving in the same direction. One would hope that would happen, but that's practically speaking, not what happens. Um, it's a lot of wheels within wheels, and a lot of people. You know, this person's doing this, and this person's doing this, and sometimes they they bump heads. And then they get going on the same page again and then they bump heads again or, or somebody else comes along and bumps it up or, you know, personalities, right? People, people get involved and people are people. So, uh, so things get interesting, you know, and it can go here and it can go there. And I, you know, unfortunately in times like this, it can go completely off the rails, right. And go right over the edge. And, and, uh, and then the whole thing becomes about getting each other and, and that's, that happens. That happens in every one of these cult groups. Happens in any group anywhere, really. Uh, certainly happens here, and it gets really loud. And then things will settle down, and you know, will uh, and people move forward from there. Um, is it effective? Yes, every, but it depends on what every single person's idea of effective is, right? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, what I do. And I can speak mostly to me. I'm not trying to make it all about me. I can speak to my effectiveness better than I think I can speak to the effectiveness of um, changing public policy. I don't do that work, right? I I don't try to contact government officials and work with them directly to change public policy. That's not what I do. I'm not... I don't not want to do that work, but my focus tends to be on these other things. So effective work in terms of public policy would be laws changed or, or you know, statutes and ordinances and, and legal things and stuff like that. Um, I'm not trying to do that, right? So in that sense of changing laws and changing you know, the way the government deals with religions or with destructive cults, I'm not really on that line directly, so I'm ineffective when it comes to that work. Where I'm effective is in helping people one-on-one and in educating people so that they realize what happened to them in the first place. People come along to my channel, they watch my videos and go, oh, shit, I didn't know I was in a cult. Or, oh, shit, I didn't realize that was culty. Or, oh, I didn't know that was trauma. Or, 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 right? I didn't realize that was manipulative. They'll They'll have these kind of, you know, learning moments and watching my stuff. And then that changes their life. And sometimes it changes it in a really significant way. And as an ex-cult member, those kind of things are important. Uh, Then they contact me personally sometimes and we work together or, you know, they get into some therapy or something and they recover from the experience and are able to move on with their life and not carry that trauma and angst and anxiety and stress around with them anymore. I think that's good work. I think that's a good thing to do. And so that's effective, uh, in that sense, but it's not the same kind of effective as shutting down a test center. Okay. So shutting down a test center. Good job. That's good work, right? Scientology is not doing what it was doing before in that location. Now, let's not fool ourselves that that means that any of those Sea Org members are not still on the job working or promoting Scientology somewhere else, you see what I mean? It's like they're going, that group is going to adapt to what you're doing, right? And they're going to change as a result. And they're going to keep doing what they're doing, the cult is, uh, you know, regardless of those kind of, of, of changes that they're forced to make or whatever or deal with. Um, not so dissimilar to what happened in 2008, right? Again, we can look at it historically and see what happens when these activities are are, are engaged in, right? So, um, so yes, I think everything is effective in one degree or another. It depends on what effect you're trying to create and, um, how long you're at it, you know, and how, how devoted you are to it, that kind of thing. So there we go. Let's see how much trouble I can get in with that comment, <laughs> that answer. <laughs> okay, um, I think we're going to need to start wrapping up here pretty soon. Oh, good. We've got a handful of questions let's, left here. So let's see if I can uh, rail through these last ones here. Uh, do young children get auditing sessions in Scientology? How do their parents allow this? Um, yes, young children do get auditing sessions in Scientology. Parents want them to, and they pay for it. Uh, auditing can be delivered to children as young as I think seven years old is the rule, uh, sort of loose rule. You can give assists to a baby. Any anybody can get assists, but actual formal auditing sessions that you'll pay for, um, you know, they'll they'll they can start on that on kids and they'll start doing objective auditing on them and stuff like that. You know, sort of touch the table, touch the floor kind of stuff. Not recall Xenu. They're not doing that on seven year olds. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's what they do there. Uh, Fabian, how far would an auditor go to physically prevent someone from blowing the session as far as they need to? They will generally try to talk you back down before they'll manhandle you. But if you're physically trying to get past an auditor and blow a session, they are going to do every single thing they know how to do to stop you. At least that's what they're trained to do. If they don't do that, they're not doing their job. It's a traumatizing, horrible job to do, you understand. I'm not saying it's okay to do that, especially in anything that is related to counseling or therapy, right? Which is, that's why we know auditing is not therapy or counseling because therapists and counselors don't do that to you. So um, anyway, yeah, they'll go as far as they need to. Even chasing out the building down to the car, I've seen it. I've seen it happen, right? I saw five staff members chasing a guy who was running out of the org uh, out of an auditing session. Was, uh, yeah, it, it, it happens. Uh, okay, Leslie asks, hey, Leslie, do you think that the big financial donors to the Church of Scientology have any awareness of how SO members are truly exploited? Um, yes, but they don't see it that way. Right. Like we've talked about so many times, people in Scientology can be can have their eyeballs looking right at a public beating of somebody and reframe it in their head that that's not really what's going on. Or they they've got it legitimized or rationalized so well that they just they, they see it, they, you know, they're looking at this and they see this, you know, kind of thing, kind of backwards world. Um, So, yes, the the public and staff of Scientology are very aware of the fact that the Sea Org work their asses off, work ridiculously long hours, get no pay, get very, you know, crappy food. They're very aware of all of this. But the Sea Org members say, it's all good. I'm in it to win it. We come back. We're going to clear the planet. You know? And they start getting that glassy-eyed days look, right? Anyway, yeah. So they go, oh, well, the C- they must, that you know, they're so dedicated. I admire them so much. Oh, the Sea Org works so hard for us. You know, it's this kind of thing. Ugh. Ugh. So gross. Uh. <laughs> what? I don't know. Oh, that's a hilarious question, though. John Travolta was recently cajoled into doing the chicken dance with other dancers wearing duck bills, and the video went viral. How will Scientology react to that? Uh, you know, they'll probably be happy that John's getting some attention in a positive direction and uh, not being called out for being uh, gay or bisexual or something. Uh, that You know, I, 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 don't, I don't think they'll react to it one way or the other. Um, I don't know. I haven't seen the video, though. If there's something horrible about this video I'm missing, let me know. But just based on what you just said. I don't really see much of a, a Scientology response there. Heidi, uh, honey, Henny. Hey, Henny. How do we help people who have survived a cult or coercive control but struggle with mental illness? Um, care, compassion, understanding and support. And education, uh, when it can be provided, when the person's open to it and open to receiving it, right? But mostly care, compassion, understanding and support. You, you, you want to be there for those people. Um, you don't talk down to them. You don't um, give them further coercive behavior. Um, you know, listen, support, understand is the best thing that, that most people can do. And quite honestly, that is the most effective thing to do. Even trained therapists or, or counselors are only going to do those things. They might do them in very particular ways, but it still comes down to care, compassion, understanding, and support. Right, Those are the things uh, that you need following a traumatic, horrible, awful life experience or, you know, um, ordeal, like being in a cult or being in a bad domestic situation, you know. Um, And what they don't need is judgment. Uh, They don't need your opinions uh, laid on them. They don't need your criticisms or your I told you so's. Um, They definitely don't need that. You know, I can't think of too many people, places where, where people need that, but but certainly trauma victims don't. Um, and you direct those people as best you can in helping them to um, professionals or support personnel or resources that they can utilize. Um, you know, government resources, um, church resources, uh, school resources. Um, you know, anything they can get their hands on that might help them to understand and recover from the experience and address their future. Uh, Even uh, things like vocational training or job training or, you know, any education in that direction. Very useful, very helpful, very practical. So there's a wide list of things you can do, but it all starts from that core care. You got to care about them. And if you don't care about them, at least don't get in their way and make things worse for them. At least don't do that. Um, yeah. Okay. And finally, uh, Anthony asks, uh, speaking of Crowley, was he just weird or evil? Is there documentation of abuse? Um. There it is. Okay, good. I'm not a real expert on Aleister Crowley's life from beginning to end. I'm aware of certain highlights in his life. I'm aware of massive amounts of drug use. I'm aware of massive amounts of, um, shall we say, sexual indiscretion and, uh, and combining these things into, you know, sort of this occult practice of... Uh, a very—it's a very strange, very bizarre set of practices that Aleister Crowley's magic system entails, and the whole Ordo Templi Orientis stuff. Right, the whole philosophy is a bit b- weird, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, his books are unintelligible. I have tried to go through them and read them, and they're just nonsensical. I really—it—it blo- it really blows me away that people actually were able to read his work, like like the Book of the Law. And make enough sense of it to follow it as a system of ritualized magic. Because it is so damn confusing. I mean, it really does read like you're reading acid trips. like, And that is what you're reading. I mean, you are reading that. So it's it's very bizarre stuff. Um, as far as personally, you know, documentation of abuse, I, I'm, nothing's coming to mind right this moment other than the drug abuse, of course, and I'm pretty sure there are some instances of some sexual and physical abuse with Crowley, if I remember right, but I'm really kind of, of, of pulling from the memory banks right now because it's been quite a while since I've dived into Alistair Crowley as a person uh, and what he did with his life. Right. So I, I, all I can say at this point is, um, you know, with that meager answer, <laughs> it really wasn't much of one, uh, you know, look him up and, uh, let me know what you find. Cause I'd be, uh, be curious, uh, about that myself a little bit. Okay. Um, oh, that's a bummer. Okay. Here's a great question to end on. <laughs> Linda Bradley. <laughs> hey, Chris, how does a person arrange a consultation with you? Just drop me in line. Uh, you can email me. You can uh, through my website, mncriticalthinking.com, or you can send me an email at Shelton at gmail.com. Either way, I will be more than happy to arrange a consultation with you. Uh, great question. Thank you for asking. All right. And uh, wow, we've gone an hour and a half today. I think we're doing pretty good. And on that happy note, I think it's time to wrap up. Um, yeah, don't see again. I think things have been relatively under control here today, which is good. I want to, again, thank all of you for your support and your viewership and for coming around and watching me blabber on in a mad raid about all this stuff. I hope my answers are informative, educational, and entertaining. And I hope that... Um, you will check out the full library of stuff I have here on my site. It's all here for you, uh, all in that direction of education, entertainment, and information. Um, oh, yeah, John Atack is wonderful. I'm, so, I'm kind of seeing some of the comments here. Uh, absolutely. Crowley is highly misunderstood. I am sure that that is true. There's a lot of people who have very... Um, I will say this. There are a lot of people who read Crowley and come away with a very beneficent, kind, sort of, he was just trying to help. It's all about love. Don't you get it? I, I know. I do know that. There's, there, there's a lot of interpretations of Crowley, um, which is why I hesitate when I start talking about the man personally, because, again, I, I'm not uh, up to speed on all the stuff about him. But his system of magic and ritualized sex and blood and all that crap Do not endorse. Do not, right? So, yeah, I I would say stay away from that stuff. Um, Okay. I'll see you guys uh, tomorrow (laughs) for the After Scientology Straight Up and Vertical. All right. Bye-bye.